Such a joy to have you all here with us this evening. I want to mention a couple of things to you. Um, <clears throat> we've been praying for uh, Dan uh, Rodriguez's daughter, uh, Lorraine. She went home uh, this weekend, and she's doing uh, very well. So uh, I know that Dan appreciates uh, all your prayers, and so we're, we're thankful uh, for that. And uh, we want to ask you to keep uh, Hortensia Bassan in prayer. She's uh, going to be having a uh, procedure on her heart tomorrow. So we, we need to lift her up. It is an outpatient, but anytime you mess with the heart, you know, it's, uh, that's one of those critical things you have to keep an eye on. So praying for the doctors, you know, to keep watch over her and, and uh, that they do their parts, certainly. And uh, all right. Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11. Slowly but surely we're going to get through this chapter. But I thought about the time that we spent last week on on establishing the identity of of one of the two witnesses that's mentioned here. And I thought, well, you know, you've got to give equal time to the other one. So we're going to spend a little bit of time understanding who that is and why. But it is very important that we, that we identify these witnesses well, because as we've been starting every session on, on chapter 11, we've been emphasizing one very important thing, and that is the Jewishness of the passage. The Jewishness of the passage. First two verses talk about the temple, and it talks about the temple and the only place that the temple can be, truly, and that is in Jerusalem. So this is something that has been uh, earmarked, in essence, uh, for us to understand. Uh, Where John is given this reed or rod or measuring reed, I should say, to to measure the temple and uh, and not to measure the the portion of it given to Gentiles. And we, we, we have talked about that. Then we began our study of the of, of the two witnesses, and that's what we're going to continue on today. So what I want to do is we we'll, might we'll just jump right into it. Verse 3, as we're dealing with that identity of, of, of the second witness, we, we know that the first witness, at least pretty clearly, uh, is Elijah. So it says, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, again, here is a, another emphasis on the Jewishness of this passage, because the olive tree is a, a type of or a symbol of Israel. The lampstands, again, are a reflection of the light that is in the most holy place. And there are two of them. Uh, And more than likely, the idea, as we saw in the picture, and you'll see it again in a moment, is that these are two uh, seven-candle menorahs. But, you know, I mean, we're not going to try to... uh, give too much indication, it's just that they're the candlesticks, which represent light, and, and which represent the reflection of the light of God 
within the presence of, of the holy place. But these are the two olive trees, the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And then we begin to get this message of, of something that takes place through them and then to them. We'll get to the two of them later, but it says, And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouths, or well, from their mouth, and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. So we realize then that they are here for the very purpose of judgment, and bringing judgment to those, as we have stated in context, are those that are on the earth during the time of the tribulation period. During the time when the church is not here any longer because God is not dealing with the church. He's dealing with Israel and with the unbeliever. And then it says, These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. That is what gave us the indication that one of these witnesses is Elijah. And then it says, And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And it is in that section of verse 6 that we're going to deal with the identity of the second uh, witness. Again, here you see two olive trees. You kind of see the images of two prophets there. One holding a scroll and another looks like he's... uh, actually proclaiming or declaring words as a prophet would do and they're standing there at the entrance of the temple and uh, as I mentioned before uh, there can there can be no greater place for these two witnesses uh, in in light of what is going to be taking place if there is going to be a temple in Jerusalem rebuilt then to have them standing at the gate of the temple to proclaim the uh, the Messiah Yeshua Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Anointed One, the one that the Jews missed when He came the first time. And it's coming back down to this particular thought, and that is, are people missing Jesus still? Think about the question. Are people missing Jesus still? Even when we give honest and good testimony of the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, we live in in very tough times. And this is why I want to say that we're living in a time when every believer in Jesus Christ, when every believer in Jesus Christ needs to be a voice, for the God of creation. The mouthpiece for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And especially for the Messiah himself, for Jesus, the Son of the living God. We are to be the voice. We are the ones called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. More and more, voices have arisen opposed to the message of truth and hope that in Jesus Christ alone is found the way to eternal life. That salvation comes through the cross of Christ and forgiveness only by the blood of Christ. Where is that message today if it isn't in the church, in the true church of Jesus Christ? Where is that message? 
And who will hear that message? Thank the Lord that you heard that message. That somebody took seriously the courage of taking the message of the gospel to your ears and eventually to your heart. But what are people preaching today in churches? Time and again, churches are becoming community centers. Let's have yoga classes. You know that yoga, of course, is a new age technique. It's, it's, a, it's an Eastern technique. Of, of, uh, it's a religious thing. It has nothing to do with the gospel. But yoga is a big deal nowadays. And there are churches that are saying, okay, you can have Christian yoga. That's, a, that's an oxymoron. Nothing Christian about yoga. It's all about the kundalini and the snake that surrounds your spinal cord or whatever. <laughs> yeah, right? What's Christian about that? The only snake I know is in chapter 3 of Genesis and caused sin in this world. The message of the gospel, the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, the message of the blood of Christ for forgiveness of sin. The message of Jesus dying on the cross, being buried and rising again on the third day, the message of the gospel. That message cannot be diluted or changed. That message cannot be softened for the sake of not being offensive to various groups of people. That message cannot be edited or trimmed down to meet the likes and the dislikes of a confused and confounded generation. Peter, quoting from from Isaiah 40, he says, Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You know what that means? The word of the Lord stands forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. The word of the Lord is forever. It never changes. It will always be the same. You do not change its meaning. You cannot change its purpose. It is ever the same. And then he says, now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Can we change that? Today. But it is being changed. So I say all of this now. I'll say all of this now because there is coming a time when the restraining influence of the church of the living God will be removed from this earth so that the Lord can settle all accounts on this earth, bringing about, first of all, the completion of the chastising judgments toward His people Israel. And by the way, that restraining influence of the church, of the living God being taken out, that's, that's the rapture of the church. But the Lord is coming to bring about the completion of the chastising of the judgments toward His people Israel, which are the final seven years of correction. We call it the 70th week of Daniel. While at the same time judging all of those who have rejected the message of the cross and the Word of God and Jesus Christ Himself. That's what's being rejected. That's, that's what, why judgment is coming. People have been given the opportunity to hear the gospel message, to hear the, the message of hope, the message of peace, the message of God's love. All, all wrapped up in what Jesus Christ came to do for us. 
And everyone has been given that opportunity, but those who have rejected that message. While today, there's still hope. Today, there's still the opportunity. One day, there will not be. You know, we've already been given a general peek at, the, at those judgments from chapter 6 through uh, chapter 10. There were a lot of things that we didn't like seeing, what we were seeing, what we were hearing. But that is yet to come. That is why it becomes so important for us and so significant for us to show the love of Christ to everyone. Especially those who don't know Him. And there are a lot more people on this earth today who do not know Jesus Christ. And some who have never even heard the name of Jesus. And what is very sad is that even in our own country, that was founded on the principles of the Word of God, founded upon Judeo-Christian ethics and the law of God. When everybody at least knew about Jesus at one time, not that everybody knew Him, but they knew about Him, now some people don't know anything about Jesus. And they're so caught up in, in worldly things. So before the greater woes are revealed at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which is, up, which is coming up here in chapter 11, the two witnesses that will speak for God and stand up for righteousness and, and evangelize the lost are identified. So it was clear last time that Elijah the prophet will be one of the two witnesses. But who is the second? Now what we learned in our previous study is that these two witnesses... Are, are, are persons, of course. And by the way, they're not only just persons, they're actually males. Because in the Greek, the, the, uh, the tense that is used is in the, in the, in the male form or the male gender as, as they're spoken of. So they are persons. Uh, they are prophets. Both of them. They are powerful. Now we've t- touched a little bit about that. We'll talk about that more today. And uh, then they will be persecuted and they will be preserved. Now those two we're not going to get to really today, but I'll read the passage uh, where we see that, or at least up to that point. Yeah, I think we will read it. So we've covered the first three last time and, and hopefully we'll cover the other two tonight, but we're just going to just read about it and then we'll really cover it next time. But, uh, but I left off last week with these questions. Let's see if you remember these questions. How does John the Baptist fit into this prophecy puzzle? And then this is an important one, even dealing with Elijah, because we already know that this, the first one's Elijah. But we still need to realize how John the Baptist fits into this po- prophecy puzzle. And then secondly, who is the second prophet witness? Is it Enoch or is it Moses? I told you, I think I told you what I already am going to tell you tonight. But I'm going to tell you why now. I'll tell you why. So I want you, I want you to go back to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament before the book of Matthew. And I hope that you remember these, these uh, particular prophecies. Where it says, Behold, I send my messenger. This is the Lord speaking. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant... In whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, before we go on, who do we normally think of when we hear or read that particular passage at the very beginning? John, don't we? John the Baptist. We'll we'll see that in just a moment. 
And then it says in verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Now, we know that John doesn't have any real connection to the, the great judgment of God, other than the fact that when John came, he came preaching repentance for sins, or repentance of sins. And, of course, bringing about the warning, you need to repent and get right with God. But as, 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 as many times as we've probably heard, as, let me just remind you, uh, the, uh, John the Baptist is considered to be the greatest uh, and, and actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. So he comes with that particular spirit, as it is even called the spirit of Elijah. He preaches that way, but he's considered the last of the Old Testament prophets. But, but who can endure the day of his coming? So now, the day of his coming, not, not the coming of, of the prophet, but the coming of the Messiah. Who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. And it gives you an indication then of the fact that when Jesus comes the second time to this earth, not the time to come to the, you know, to get to, to gather the church together, that's a separate thing that's already happened, but then we come with him actually at the second coming, and it says, you know, he's, a, he's like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. Well, what do those two things do? They cleanse and they purify. And what needs to be purified is this earth of all of the ugliness and the, the, the filth and the sin of man. And then in verse 3 it says, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. Which means he's going to purify his people, Israel, and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And then I I mentioned to you to go on over to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And notice the mention of, of Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, some people would think that that might be the John the Baptist, you know, referring to John the Baptist. Now, we're going to talk about that because we need to make that distinction very clear. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, what is the day of the Lord? That is the tribulation period. We've already made that clear in our study of the book of Revelation. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, we're not going to deal wholeheartedly with that, but I think you get the picture that he's going to be bringing them back to their understanding of who God is and who their Messiah is. And then, once again, the families of Israel will be established in him. So, there are some who believe that these scriptures were fulfilled, now listen, were fulfilled in John the Baptist or by John the Baptist. Considering this text in Mark, the the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, notice, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who I will, or I'm sorry, who will prepare your way before you. Now, of course, here, there, it, is, it is referring to a near fulfillment of prophecy, which is in the person of John the Baptist. It says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. We've seen this already from Isaiah 
Chapter 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. We've also seen it in Malachi. And then it says, John came baptizing. So now the emphasis is on John. He came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So is it John the Baptist? Is he actually fulfilling then the, the, the prophecy of, or, or, uh, that, uh, that Elijah has come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord? And we have to say, well, no, but let's, let's actually hear it from John himself. Don't you think that would be good? I think it would be good to hear from John himself. In John chapter 1, now this is the gospel of the apostle John, chapter 1, verse 19, where John is talking about John. John is talking about John the Baptist. And it says, now this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now I, I believe that's a valid question asked by the priests and the Levites, because they have been looking for whom? Who are they waiting for? Messiah. And one of the things that is, 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 is opening their eyes to, to things, and, and they were keeping their eyes open and their ears open, was that they were, they were listening for anybody that might reflect some coming of the prophet Elijah, because Elijah would usher in the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. But before that day comes, what did Jesus come to do first? He came to save. He came. As we've read before, in John three sixteen and 17, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, so it's not that first time that He came to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And John is the nearer fulfillment of that particular prophecy being uh, understood. John comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so they say, who are you? They want to hear, I'm Elijah. But he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing he didn't confess that he's the Christ because he's not. He says, I'm not the Christ. And then they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. That should settle it, right? So why do people keep thinking that John is Elijah? The Bible just says he came in the power and spirit of Elijah, but he says, I'm not. Now, here's another very important question in, in light of our study tonight. Are you the prophet? Now, is that speaking of Jesus? Or is it speaking of Moses? Nobody wants to answer because you're afraid. It's probably speaking of Moses. And guess what he says? No, I'm not. I'll explain the prophet and, and uh, Caesar. They've already asked if he's the Christ, which means, are you the, the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Do you see the three mentioned together? The Christ, the prophet Elijah, and the prophet Y'all see that. Keep that in mind. Don't erase it. So, there was, there's a misreading of our Lord's words. And, that, and this is why it brings confusion. That's why I don't want you to be confused here in the book of Revelation chapter 11. 
But there's a misreading in Matthew. Okay, let's see. Did I miss one? Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Well, yeah, I got to finish about what he said anyway, didn't I? There we go. He said, I am the voice crying of one crying in the wilderness. So he's the near fulfillment of bringing forth the message of Messiah coming the first time. To do what? To save. And he says, I'm the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. So Isaiah, and then of course Malachi repeats that. Okay, here's Matthew now. Matthew 11, verse 11. Assuredly, this is Jesus speaking. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wow, that's, that's a tremendous verse, but we don't have time to go over that. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. That's another heavy duty thing, but we don't have time to get to that. But then he says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And I want you to notice the, the, the mention of prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if now, now here's the important verse that I, I want you to see. And if you are willing to receive it, do you notice that it is underlined there? I did that on purpose. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. And people say, you see, John is Elijah. You see how easy it is to misread that? And it's all because of that one little word, it. It's all because of that one little word, it. Because the word, it, is italicized in most of our Bibles. Because it was not in the original Greek text. It would actually read, and if you are willing to receive. Now the context is, if you're willing to receive the message of John, of what he has come to preach, if you are willing to receive the message dealing with Mashiach or the Messiah, then he's Elijah who is to come. Now let me explain because of that word being not there really, the statement made by the Lord means then, not that John the Baptist was Elijah, but that John the Baptist would have been considered by God. Now listen, he would have been considered by God as fulfilling the prophecy if the men in Christ's day had been willing to receive the ministry and the message of John concerning the Messiah, Jesus. If they had received the message and received Jesus as Messiah, then it would have been considered that John had fulfilled then the, the, the ministry and message of Elijah. Not that he was, but he came in the spirit of Elijah. And today, they're still looking for Elijah. Do you know that in most Jewish homes during Passover, there's always one place setting that's left alone? You know who it's for? Elijah. So this is very real to the Jewish mindset. But we need to be clear that John is not Elijah. And, and this really kind of, and Jesus makes it clear, but if we misread it, people will still say, but you know, John is Elijah. No, he's not. He's not. So I, I want to just make that clear. 
Because John did do his work in the spirit and power of Elijah. I've been saying that. That's actually from Luke chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, if if you want to look it up later. He did his work in the spirit and power of Elijah, but the greater fulfillment is yet to be seen. And that is going to be seen in Revelation chapter 11 in these two witnesses. Okay, so I just wanted to clarify that. I know I've taken a lot of time on that, but I think it's important that we realize the identification of these, of these prophets. So the identification of Elijah is clear. But what about the second witness? And that's for tonight. Some good commentators believe that the second witness is Enoch on the basis that Enoch is the other person in the scriptures who did not die a physical death. Now remember we mentioned Elijah was caught up with a chariot of fire into heaven or at least into wherever God wants him to be. So he's caught up. Anytime we mention the word caught up or the phrase caught up, what are we, what are we implying in essence as a, as a type of the rapture? Enoch, by the way, is mentioned in that way in Genesis chapter 5, if you remember. Uh, verse 21 says, Enoch lived 65 years and he begot Methuselah. Methuselah was Enoch's son, and the word Methuselah, or the name Methuselah, means after the flood, judgment. After the flood, judgment. So that gives us an indication then that judgment is going to come in the time of Enoch. But then it says, after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and notice the last phrase, and he was not, for God took him. In other words, he's gone. God took him. He's walking with God, and God says, come on, Enoch. You come with me. And Enoch then becomes a type of the church, who are to be walking with God, to be one minute here, and then we're not, because God takes us. Got the picture. All right. Now, the proof text for this thing about, you know, Elijah and Enoch uh, not dying physically, the, the, the proof text is usually Hebrews 9.27. And you all are familiar with this, right? And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment... Y'all aware of that verse? I, I think we all have studied it. I taught it before. But the text is used to say that it is necessary for Enoch to return to the earth to die. Because in a few verses in Revelation 11, the two witnesses, after they do and complete the work that God wants them to complete on this earth, during that uh, three and a half year period of time, then they're killed. So they're, they're, they're brought back, you know, the, the thought is that they're brought back to die. Now, I, I want you to think, think. Because at the very moment that the two witnesses come forth to perform their ministry upon earth, there will be multitudes in heaven that have never died. You ever thought about that? There will be multitudes in heaven that have not died. They were raptured. 
They didn't die. Do they have to come back to the earth later to die? But it says it is appointed unto man once to die. And then the judgment. Okay, well, let's talk about that. The totality, listen, the totality of the generation living at the return of the Lord for the church will escape death. We know that. That's what the rapture of the church is all about. As a matter of fact, let's go back to one of our texts about the rapture. Behold, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 50, 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. This has been shrouded until now. Let me tell you what it is. We shall not all sleep, which is a reference to dying. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <clears throat> which is probably a, a good um, uh, text to put outside most nurseries and churches. We shall all be changed. Okay. But we shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. And he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So that's very clear. Something's going to happen that is supernatural. That God does. He does it in His own power. He does it in His own way. Jesus said, I'm going to come and I'm going to gather you unto Myself so that where I am, there you will be also. These are very clear issues. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 does the very same thing. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with those who have been raised first of all the dead shall be raised in Christ first. And then we shall, who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him. Caught up. Taken. Snatched. And we shall be changed. The corruptible will put on incorruptible, will go on to say, and the mortal shall put on immortality. So we got the picture. So there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be dead. Now remember that some people have even died twice, right? Lazarus died twice. And others raised by Jesus. Paul, Elijah, and Elisha. Those were people, raised people from the dead. Of course, it was God that raised them all. But they were used in raising people from the dead. Now, Jesus, of course, raised Elijah. He had the power. So consider that the Hebrews text on death and judgment may very well be referring. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this because I'm not really teaching anything that's foreign, but I think we just need to teach it right. We need to consider that the Hebrews text on death and judgment, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment, is, is very well referring to spiritual death and not just physical death. Because the context of Hebrews chapter 9, especially down around verse 27, the context clearly speaks of salvation from eternal death. Salvation from eternal death. Being that man was appointed to die once, and do you know where that was? You should know it. Genesis chapter 3. It was appointed unto man to die once. What did God say to Eve and to Adam? You can eat of the fruit of, of any tree in this garden except for the fruit of one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that you eat of the, tr of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will begin to die. You will die. Now, what did they die immediately? What, what died immediately first? Their spirit. They became spiritually dead. 
later, I mean, they lived a long, long time after that, physically, and eventually died. But they were appointed to spiritual death first. You got the picture? All right, so I'm using that so that you can see that death was first and foremost spiritual. And because all have sinned, we know that from Romans, all have sinned. So Jesus Christ, who by the way is the seed of the woman, right? We talked, we, we spent a lot of time back a, a few years ago in Genesis chapter 3. Do you know it's coming up on four years as we've been in the book of Genesis on Sunday morning? But it's okay. I mean, hey, it's the word of God. It's good, good stuff. But it's been that long. But Genesis chapter 3, what did we study? That the seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. And because all have sinned, so Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, was once offered. Notice. And that is the, the, the position here that we need to understand in, in Hebrews 9. Is what it's telling us is we were appointed to that once, but Jesus was once offered. Once offered. Got it? Once offered to bear the sins of many. Because it was sin that killed us. Spiritually. Okay, with that, hopefully settled and understood, upon more examination also, there is no scriptural prophecy either in the Old or New Testament which demands the return of Enoch. No prophecy that demands the return of Enoch. So as we have spoken of in our study of the rapture of the church, Enoch indeed is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ taken out of the world before the tribulation shall come upon it. Which brings us then to the person of Moses. Let's look at the the text again in in Revelation 11 verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Again, the Jewishness of the passage. Two olive trees... Olives represent Israel, uh, the olive trees represent Israel. Lamp stands, of course, the light of God in the temple. And, and they are to be the ones who pray and, 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 and give forth the light of the Lord. Just as we are, are also called the light, uh, we, are, we are God's light in the world and all of that. Okay, and then it says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. They're given special supernatural power while they're going to be here. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. So they're going, to, you know, they're going to be protected pretty well by the gifts that God has given them for those three and a half years. But it says, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. That was Elijah, remember? And then it says, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When did that happen and where is it in the scriptures? One place. In the book of Exodus, chapter 7 through 12. And the person upon whom was given the ability and in essence uh, the calling as it were to go into face of Pharaoh turning the waters of the Nile into blood and all sorts of plagues was Moses. Moses. The text, especially here in verse 6, 
appears to point to Elijah and Moses, who are to have authority upon the waters, to turn them to blood, to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So just as the prophecy concerning the drought pointed us to Elijah, so the prophecy about the plagues point to Moses. Exodus 7 through 12. Now, to certify. Now, we've kind of certified Elijah's position in this, but to certify this identification, we do need to look at a prophecy given to Moses about a prophet who was to be like himself. So, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And here is a prophecy given to Moses. And, and, and let me just say up front that many will say Moses... Well, actually, the Lord is giving this to Moses so that we're pointing forward to Jesus in his office as prophet. And there's some validity to that, and we'll see that. I, I just want to mention that. But it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. From your midst, Moses, and from your brethren, the Jews. Verse 16 is, is, is a verse we won't look at, but just speaking of you know, Moses saying, you know, it's, it's too heavy for him in essence. That's kind of what that verse is. But, so in verse 17 it says, The Lord said to me, what, what they have spoken is good, and I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. So notice the words, prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now more and more we say, well, this is really just pointing to Jesus. And we can say, sure. I mean, there's, there's some understanding there. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. And again, that could be a very valid point of, of looking at the fact that, you know, the people who reject the words of Jesus, eventually, you know, they're going to be judged for, for their rejection of him. But I want you to hold on to this thought here, that the Lord is saying to Moses as well, a prophet like you, because it is you. And one day you will come back, and I will put words in your mouth. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which I give to you, which he speaks in my name, this prophet, I will require it of him. And what is it that that prophet is going to do that is the second witness along with the first? They're going to proclaim the gospel. They're going to speak of Jesus Christ. And if people don't listen, they're going to be judged. So keep that in mind. I'm just saying keep that in mind. There can be seen in this passage that dual fulfillment. That's all I'm trying to say. There can be seen this dual fulfillment. Just as we saw a dual fulfillment with John and Elijah, we can see a, a, a dual fulfillment of this prophecy and that while it can and does refer to Christ Himself, there is also no doubt that the Jews of Christ's day would distinguish between Messiah, Elijah, and the prophet. For example, John 1.25 and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize? Again, they're asking John the Baptist. 
Why then do you baptize if you are not, notice, if you are not the Christ, in other words, you're not the Mashiach, you are not Elijah, nor the prophet. Now do you notice there's Christ, Elijah, and the prophet, as I I mentioned to you before. There's the three together, aren't they? Who's the prophet then? You, you, you can't say, well, if you're, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor Christ, if he's the prophet at a given time? So based on the Deuteronomy passage, and again, it is based on when these prophecies are fulfilled. Just like with John, it was fulfilled as a spirit and power of Elijah, but he's not Elijah. Elijah will come again. When Jesus comes, he comes in the in, in uh, really fulfilling all of the law, doesn't he? Now, who's associated with the law? Moses. So there is this 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 important connection that we're seeing here in, on, on this Deuteronomy passage, because the prophecy can point again to the second of the two witnesses as well, who is Moses. But then don't forget another important and confirming passage. Please turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 verse 27 and following. This is a a, a long passage, but you know what this passage is, don't you? Now Jesus says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. You got it? We think, wow, what's he talking about? I tell you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Then we find out in verse 28, now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, after Jesus said that, that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So there are James, Peter, and John, or we want to put it correctly, Peter, John, and James. But sometimes it's Peter, James, and John. So I don't know what the order is, why it's the way it is now. But Peter, John, and James... And these are the three who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And where do they see it? He says, as he prayed. Now, where did they go? Well, let's go back. He went up on a mountain to pray. And and as he prayed, the appearance of his face, the face of Jesus, was altered and his robe became white and glistening. He's changing before their eyes. There's Peter, John, and James. You know, their eyes are going, wow, what's happening here? Jesus is changing in our eye, right before our eyes. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory. Very similar to the way Jesus appeared. White and glistening. And spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So, Luke gives us an indication, a little bit of of the conversation that Moses and Elijah had with Jesus about his death. And there they are, in front of Peter, James, and John. And they see, in essence, 
the kingdom of God. The reign of God, the rule of God before their eyes. And, and it says, but Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. <laughs> wow, dudes, what's up with that? Did you really see them in, in their glory? And then fall asleep? I want you to consider this as somewhat of a picture of the way things can be today, even in the church, where God is so much wanting to reveal Himself in all of His glory in our lives. And we go through the motions of going to church and singing the songs and and doing all kinds of stuff. And then we just go to sleep. I don't mean physically sleep because we need that. Some of us do more than others. But we fall asleep spiritually. As, As if... The kingdom of God is not that important. Or, or the works that God is doing now in preparation for the coming of Jesus, it's just, it's got to take a back seat to certain things, you know. It takes a back seat to our entertainment and our sports and our, all this other stuff. So think about that. And then it happened as they were parting from him. But Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. It's always good to be where Jesus and Moses and Elijah are, isn't it? But he says, oh, this is good. Let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Notice, not knowing what he said. Not knowing what he said. We are oftentimes so ignorant what God is trying to reach us about. The very presence of a holy God, the very presence of of a holy Christ. And it just becomes a part of a routine. We have to be very careful about that. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Hear Him. And that's what I mean. Are we, are we hearing what Jesus is saying to us? Are we reading the Scriptures? Are we spending time in prayer? Are we spending time in, in just wanting to know what God wants for us on a daily basis? Lord, what do you want me to do today? I think sometimes the Lord is saying, it's not so much of what I want you to do, it's just who I want you to be. Because isn't it about who we are in Christ? Not so much what what we do, but who we are in Christ. That the world needs to see that Christ is in us, the church, the hope of glory. And then we have to consider the fact that there are those who 
who oftentimes ask you because they're not really sure who that second witness is. And they say, well, didn't Moses die in the wilderness? Didn't Moses die in the wilderness? Well, we do. We do. What we do know is, is what's in Scripture. Deuteronomy 34 verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died. There in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Yeah, he died. Because it says so. And notice it says, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab. Now, who he? Who he? Who he? He buried him. Who he? It's the Lord. The Lord buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Oh, listen, you can go to the Middle East, and especially in, in, in the areas of Israel and Jordan and some of those areas down there. You, you know, they're, they're, they have found a lot of sepulchers and graves of very important people in the Scriptures. They have found these places. And they just seem to know that these are the places where certain people have been buried. But they can't find where Moses was buried. They can't find it. And there's reason we don't know where Moses is buried. And that's, that's found in Jude, verse 9. The little book before Ro- uh, Revelation. Remember this, this passage that Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a, a, a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And, and you know, we do use this properly if we say, well, you know, we're not to, we're not to be rebuking you know, principalities and powers as if we have any power over them. They've got a whole lot more power than we do. But really the emphasis of this is what it was all about. It was about the body of Moses. There should be no difficulty in believing that. That Moses' body could be kept in some special way by the Lord for the fulfillment of his purposes. Did he not raise Lazarus from the dead? Does God not have power over life and death? Cannot God give and revive people's lives whenever? But he's uh, 3,000 and a half years old. Doesn't matter. I can do it. The Lord is able. And so just as Moses and Elijah were together on the Mount of Transfiguration, I believe they will be working together once again for three and a half years or 1260 days during the time of the tribulation period. And I want you to keep in mind a few things. First of all, keep in mind that Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets and will do so again when they come again. So these two witnesses who were empowered and protected by the Holy Spirit during the time of their ministry to Israel will return to testify of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world, to Israel, to, to the Jew first, and also to everyone else. And as mentioned before, out of this ministry, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be saved. And that is the fruit of their labor. But that work will have its end. Because of time, let's just read this passage. Verses 7 through 13. Because I don't want you to think we, we're, there isn't a 7. There is a 7. We've been kind of hanging on verses 1 through 6 the last 3 4 weeks. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them 
And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. We're going to talk about all of this next time. And then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. All of that we will deal with next time. But because of time, let me just offer this one last thought for tonight. And please understand that it is a very important thought. I don't, I don't care how weak one may be, or how handicapped one may feel. It doesn't matter how uneducated a person may be or even how big the enemy might be. A believer's life, a believer's life will not end until the work that the Lord called them to do is completed. A believer's life will not end until the work that the Lord called them to do is completed. Moses and Elijah, the two witnesses, will work for the Lord for three and a half years. And then they will be killed in the very streets that Jesus had walked. In the very place where Jesus died. How interesting that they will be there for three and a half days in the street and then they'll rise again. But as Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, he said, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. He began the work, he will complete the work. Now, toward the end of this chapter, Paul also says this, and I want to close with this very quickly. Paul said, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ. As long as I have breath, I live for Jesus. As long as I can move 
Even if it's not very much, but as long as I can move, it's for Christ. But to die is gain. Because when I die as a believer, I'll be in His presence. Paul says, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. If I have to keep living, I've got to keep working. And yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, because to die is gain, you see. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And he knew that because the Lord had put it on his heart. You're not done yet, Paul. You're not done yet. Your work is not done. He moved Paul all over the place, didn't he? He didn't settle in one place or another. He just kept moving as the Lord led him. So, he says, And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So, the thing that we all need to remember as we close now, the thing that we all need to remember is there is nothing that is as dangerous as being out of the will of God. There is nothing that is as dangerous as being out of the will of God. So I encourage you to seek the face of God each and every day to know what God's will is for you on a daily basis, every day. Lord, what would you have me do today for you? One thing for sure is you don't have to be one of the two witnesses. That's already taken care of. But you may be called to give your life for Jesus Christ. Just be ready and rejoice. For to me, to live is Christ and to die. That's just gain. That's just gain. And Moses and Elijah, well, they're going to gain a double portion because they've already served the Lord and they're going to come back and serve Him again. So you see... Never give up on what God wants to do for you and what God wants to do with you and through you. Let's pray.